Hi, everyone. I'm Cindy Mooring, the founder and executive chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Sam M. Walton College of Business. And this is The Biz, the Business Integrity School podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, education, and most importantly, your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real world experience as a senior executive. So if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome, let's get started. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Biz, the Business Integrity School. I'm Cindy Mooring, the founder and executive chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative, and I'm very fortunate to tell you that today, for our discussion on all things tech ethics, we have with us a very special guest, Jerry Jones from LiveRamp. Hi, Jerry, how are you? I'm fine. Good morning. Please. Good morning. It is. It's great to see you. And it was really great to be able to see you in person last month. Um, Jerry has had a very long history with Walton College. He's been on the Dean's External Advisory Board. He currently serves on my External Advisory Board for the initiative. Um, We have just been really fortunate to have a relationship with Jerry over the years. We worked together way back in the day when I was at Walmart on some things, and um, Jerry's just fantastic. He is the EVP and also the Chief Ethics and Legal Officer for LiveRamp. Um, And in addition to that, he has um, um, several other positions, but one of which of interest is Special Advisor to an organization known as Club de Madrid, which I know sounds like a soccer team or a soccer club, but it's actually not. It's um, uh, a very special organization that you actually have to be a former head of state to be a member of, and Jerry is fortunate enough to be a special advisor to them. So Jerry, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. It's wonderful that we get the chance to talk to you. You're welcome, and thank you. Can you just start by telling everybody, the audience, a little bit about you and your background and your history? How did you get interested in this field of of tech? And how did you find yourself in the position you are today at LiveRamp? Great way to start. So um, I suppose my career decisions really started um, on a cold, wet Friday night on a football field in 1972. Um, I was a Bentonville Tiger playing football against our arch rival Rogers. And as luck would have it, I kind of had a bad break that night. I broke my ankle very severely. Um, and I ended up in the hospital for a couple of days. And I realized that, you know, whatever athletic career I thought I might be able to achieve um, wasn't going to happen. And I wanted to be a football coach, right? I, I, was, I was a Razorback fan. I wanted to be a football coach. So with that collegiate athletic experience, uh, that was going to be pretty much out of the question. So as I was laying in the hospital bed, I thought, okay, now what? And I thought about my skills and what I like to do and what I didn't like. And I realized that I really like learning. I like talking with people and learning from people. And I thought about, well, where could that be put to use? I thought about preaching. I mean, our family was at the Methodist church every Sunday morning, but I didn't think that was going to work out so well for me. So I thought about being a lawyer. And uh, that's when I decided I'd be a lawyer. So the next year, a couple of other things happened. I had the opportunity to be a state president, national officer of Future Business Leaders of America, which really broadened my perspectives. It gave me the opportunity to travel across our country and 
meet people all over the, the United States. And it, it really was a wonderful experience. And I also met a very young, curly-headed law professor who was thinking about running for Congress. And I, first time I met him, I thought, you know, this fellow just might end up being president of the United States. <laughs> and he was, and I'm very <laughs> blessed to have his friendship for 48 years. So all of that convinced me that I ought to be a lawyer. So I went to the University of Arkansas, got my graduate, undergraduate degree in about three years. And uh, why was I trying to rush through? Well, I'd fall in love with a wonderful girl who was two years ahead of me in school. So <laughs> I needed to catch up about as fast as I could before she got away. <laughs> um, so I went straight to law school, uh, graduated in 1980, joined my dream law firm, Rose Law Firm in Little Rock. Great law what, firm. What a place. What a yes. place. The intellectual and professional level of experience there was just, well, it was daunting and thrilling at the same time. Mm -hmm. It was really the perfect place for me to grow up and practice law, which I did for 19 years. Tried all kinds of products, lawsuits, products, li uh, products liability, lender liability, security class actions, uh, five antitrust cases that I actually went to trial. Wow. We had some great mentors, people like Vince Foster, Phil Carroll, Hillary Clinton, uh, Tim Bo, Ken Sheeman, and a bunch of others. And I learned so much. But where I really learned the most was having the opportunity to be around some of my amazing clients. They were great decision makers and great mm. business people. Mm -hmm. Folks like Walter Smiley of Systematics, who's really the godfather of the technology industry in the state of Arkansas. Um, Mr. Stevens, Jack Stevens of Stevens Inc., Joe Ford of Altel, his son Scott, first of Stevens and later Altel, um, Mr. Tyson, Don Tyson of Tyson Foods, Ronnie Cameron of Mount Air, and Don Allen of the Poultry Federation, and Charles Morgan of Axiom. And being around these people gave me the opportunity to see how they made decisions that created immense opportunities for the people that were working with them. And, you know, sometimes I just had to pinch myself to believe that I was really getting paid <laughs> to provide counsel to these folks and their companies. I felt like, you know, they were probably sitting down at the end of the road, you know, having a coat, just waiting for me to show up, you know, <laughs> waiting for me to catch up with them because they were all brilliant. And then in the late 1990s, um, had the opportunity to represent Amazon just as it was getting started and it was being sued in a very, very serious case that if we lost, it really would have put a cramp on their business. I mean, it, it was a literal bet the company lawsuit. And I spent time with their senior leadership, including Jeff Bezos and all the things about him using a, you know, a door and a sawhorse for his desk. Those are true. Um, and I came oh, to realize wow. that this internet thing was really real. Yeah. It was going to change the world. Literally was going to change it. And it held the promise of kind of mitigating the tyranny of geography. And it opened up so many ways to share information at nil cost around the globe. And change was on the horizon. And about that time, Charles Morgan of Axiom started talking with me about joining the leadership team. It took about a year to get there, but we finally worked it out. And why would I leave my dream job at Rose and join Axiom? Well, it was a hard decision. But first, the people were great. They were just wonderful people to work with. You know, I was a trial lawyer and I represent them. And most of the time when a trial lawyer is around their client, there's a problem. 
and people are not in a good mood. Right. I always found these people to be very reasonable and operate in good faith. And second, they were the market leader in yeah. the physical world of direct marketing. And I mm -hmm. thought it sure would be a, a lot of fun to be along for the ride and help transition that company from being a, a world leader in direct marketing into a digitally oriented business over right. the right time and cadence. Um, and then finally, you know, to be honest, um, it was going to be a really good financial opportunity. And Charles did something that really impressed me. He, he said, okay, what's it going to take? We didn't really want to negotiate. We were friends at that point. He said, what's it going to take for you to leave the Rose firm after, you know, 19, 20 years? And I told him, and he added 10%. Oh my gosh. And I he went, really, wow. He wow. wanted you. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and he got me. I mean, he got all of me. I was all right. in, you know, that was a tremendous vote of confidence. When I joined the company, I didn't want to be pigeonholed as the lawyer. So we put my title as head of business development, general counsel. Mm -hmm. And over the years, um, that worked out pretty well. Um, mm -hmm. I had the opportunity to take the company into Australia, Brazil, China, the Middle East. Uh, we bought um, several companies in Europe. One was a, um, a very interesting transaction. It was um, a French public company owned by uh, an Italian public company that was dominated by a private equity firm. Oh, wow. And, uh, it, it was a fascinating negotiation. I told, um, you know, my, my French colleagues that we were buying the business. I said, look, the only thing that I'm sure of, if you want to check from us, we're all going to have to speak English because I don't understand Italian. I don't understand. <laughs> and, and we got the deal done. Um, and being able to travel around the world and do those deals, again, really broadened my perspectives um, and helped me understand how interconnected we are. So, you know, over the years, I've certainly had privacy uh, report to me, which mm -hmm. later remained data ethics. I have public policy. I do a lot of our M&A work and a lot of the security. And then um, I've also uh, kind of been a utility infielder for the company from time to time. Yeah. Um, and I had security and I also ran HR for about a year and a half, um, oh, wow. which again was a really interesting experience. So one of the companies that we acquired along the way was LiveRank. And uh, that's the company that we are now. Mm -hmm. In 2018, while we were still Axiom, we reorganized the company where LiveRamp became the parent company and we sold off Axiom to IPG. Um, and um, that's worked pretty well. Um, we're, we're, we're growing um, considerably. When we bought the company, it had about $35, $40 million in revenue. Yep. We're going to be well over $500 million this year. So wow. it's a good company. That's a lot of growth, really fast. Well, thank you. We're, we're very pleased uh, that our customers have been trusted with, that, with us with that much business. Yeah. As you mentioned, I have been involved in a lot of public policy issues over the years. Yeah. Um, I was the chair of the only statewide school district for a number of years. It was completely virtual school. Um, we got it started to... Uh, show that um, you could deliver high quality educational content into parts of our state where you might not be able to get um, higher mathematics or, or um, advanced science teachers. Um, I've been on the board of the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, Heifer, Ford, Arkansas, and Governor Beebe 
called me one day and said, we got a problem that I'd like for you to fix. And I said, well, Governor, we probably got a lot of those, but what's, <laughs> <laughs> what's this one? He said, well, we need to get high-speed broadband into all of our schools in Arkansas. And I said, well, I thought we did that back in 92. And he said, yeah, but that was with the copper wire. And, um, you know, those are 2,400 baud uh, capabilities. Uh, if anybody uh, remembers what, you know, 2,400 baud was, it's kind of like a turtle walking uphill. Um, and we work to, to get that. And, and I've also been blessed to work closely with um, the Clinton Foundation and the Clinton School of Public Service. And as you mentioned, um, I have had the, the honor of working with the Club de Madrid. It's the organization of former heads of state. You have to have run a democracy to be a full member. Um, we brought them to Little Rock about a decade ago to have their annual meeting in, here in, in Arkansas. They loved coming here. They loved coming here. I bet. Um, and some of the members of that organization are literally the George Washingtons of their countries. Yeah. They are the people that actually fought in the streets and put their lives on the line. Yeah. Move their country to a, a representative form of government, a democracy. Mm -hmm. And it's just so inspiring to... Um, to have the opportunity to work with them, to try to help democracies deliver better for their yeah. people and also help other countries prepare um, if they want to start moving down a path towards a more democratic form of government. Yeah. If I may, there's one other thing that I want to mention. Yeah. That um, for the last six years, um, I've, I've spent a lot of time on and is very close to my heart. And that is to trying to bring awareness and progress uh, to and, and combat the problems that we face from uh, opiates and addiction. Our family lost a child to this disease. And I think it's critically important that we destigmatize the disease of addiction. It is an, it, 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 it's a disease. So I've been speaking publicly about this disease, hoping that in some small way, I can help destigmatize it. Um, also yeah. worked with a lot of other good people where we got a state law adopted in Arkansas that requires um, a medical professional to check a statewide prescription database before they can prescribe opiates. Mm -hmm. This cut down on a lot of doctor shopping and mm -hmm. prescription opiates are a, uh, can, ver can very well be a pathway uh, to addiction, and we just needed to help the medical community better know their patients. We were we were glad to work on that. We, we saved some lives, um, and I've also worked with some very large retail companies to do some things in this area. And I'm very proud of of what Walmart, in particular, has done uh, in this effort. Um, but so much remains to be done. Um, you know, the news has recently told us that we lost a hundred thousand people in our country last year to uh, opiates and, and opiate overdoses. So this is something that, um, as I said, it's close to my heart. It's close to my family's hearts. Yes. And it's something that we're, we're trying to make better. So that's probably way too much. No, I, you have such an interesting and varied background and have given given of yourself so much um, back to the state and into this cause that it obviously is very close to your heart for, for obvious reasons. and. You know, I'm so sorry for your loss, and I'm glad that you're able to to take that that passion and channel it in into another way. But I mean, you you give back in so many ways that um, 
hearing about that and the different things that you're involved in, I think is very useful for the audience to understand how full um, and purposeful a life can be uh, well beyond just what you do uh, on the business side. So thanks for sharing all that. I thought that was wonderful. So let's come back and talk about um, LiveRamp for just a minute. I, that company itself is, is not going to be a household name uh, no. to a lot of people. So I, I want to set the stage for that and have you tell us a little bit about it. And then we're going to dive into what you talked about, data, data privacy, data ethics a little bit. Um, but tell us briefly, who is LiveRamp and, and what do they do? Sure. Um, well, Lions Ramp's vision is that we will uh, help make the world's data safe and effective. Um, as we've talked about, we're a relatively fast-growing, technology-oriented company that does several things. First, we're really, really good at being able to link offline data with online data. Secondly, we provide ways for our customers who are businesses that want to reach certain groups of people to do so. Uh, to market to groups of people at scale, either digitally or physically. And third, we provide the capabilities for companies such as retailers to be able to safely and secure data about their customers with those who they want to share data with. Mm. Um, and fourth, we've created a marketplace where companies can monetize the data that they have in a secure and privacy respectful manner. You can kind of think of that part of our business as the New York Stock Exchange of data. We don't mm. own the data that goes through our marketplace. We just provide the pipes and facilities. Um, most of our revenue comes from the United States, but about 20% round numbers comes from outside of the U.S., primarily uh, in European countries. Mm -hmm. But we have the capability of providing um, services pretty much globally. Uh, we have offices across the U.S. We're headquartered in, in San Francisco. We have offices in central Arkansas here in Little Rock and New York and Phoenix and Chicago and a number of other places and offices in, in Europe and uh, in, in China, Japan, Australia as well. Wow. Um, and so that's who we are. We have roughly 1,500 people, round numbers, who are our colleagues working with mm -hmm. Mm hmm. Wow. So so LiveRamp's really a B2B company, which is why, it you know, there's not an app. They can't go out there, and, you know, find no. out. But it's a, it's a company that is a, is a B2B company, but a really critical yeah. one um, in terms of this information and data flow that you just talked about. So let's talk about the data. <laughs> Obviously, a company like LiveRamp has to have a lot of data or be working with a lot of data. Like you said, sometimes you're just the pipes. Uh, for which it goes through. I, I've actually heard, not sure if I've got this right, I'll let you tell me that it's one of the largest data sets in the world out there that you guys work with and manage outside of, you know, maybe a few of the very, very large tech companies. But that really brings to mind for me data ethics, data privacy, which is just a bedrock principle for, you know, the business model that you have. So can you share with us a little bit about how LiveRamp thinks about ensuring protection and privacy for all the data that it uses, manages, touches, owns? Yes, um, we do touch a lot of data about people. And, and obviously we take our responsibilities around that very seriously. We view ourselves as stewards of, of data. And if yeah. we don't deal with that data in an appropriate, respectful manner, eventually we're not gonna be able to deal with the data. The laws will change or, or something will happen. Yeah, And I would start with uh, really our, our first, company value 
do the right thing. You know, if you do the right thing in the first instance, things get a lot simpler. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's kind of our foundational mindset. Do the right thing. So data privacy can really be looked at from two primary perspectives. First, the data has to be as secure as it can be once it is within our system and we're transferring data. And we have a dedicated security team that's charged with setting the security standards, policies, and practice. Um, And they're constantly working to assure the integrity of our systems. We know that we're targets. We know the news has been replete over the years with the number of hacking instances of companies, both electronic and and social engineering. And so we have to be very, very vigilant in our efforts to prevent improper access um, and exfiltration of our data. So we take it seriously. We have- Yeah, so so just on that, just on that point for a minute, I mean, let's think about that. It's in terms of being a, a target, for a company like LiveRamp, it would be getting able, I mean, they would be able to get access to so many different individual and companies' data, right? As opposed to just targeting a company. So I, I can understand now with your business model why why you would be such a target. And I would imagine a hacking incident is one that your security team spends a lot of time <laughs> thinking about to try to avoid. Wow. Well, it does. We're going back in time almost 15 years ago when we were at Axiom, um, we did have um, two instances that happened at the same time where we were hacked and uh, it was discovered and um, we called up the U.S. attorney, called up the FBI, and we were actually able to assist the U.S. government in bringing prosecutions. And it's one of the few times when there has been a successful prosecution of hackers. And they went to jail. Uh, there was somebody in Ohio that went to jail for about five years. And then the CEO of a company that had hacked us for hacked Axiom for commercial reasons went to jail. The CEO went to jail. Um, and I would say that, um, you know, that's one of the few instances where um, we've been able to utilize the laws that are already on the books to pursue hackers because many times hackers are beyond the jurisdiction right. in the United States. But right. it, it, was a, it was a good experience working with the Department of Justice on this. It was really the first time that they had pursued this type of case and we learned from each other. Wow. Um, so we do take it serious and yeah. we want to hold people accountable. Um, secondly, uh, the other aspect of um, our data stewardship is data ethics. And we don't call it data privacy, we call it data ethics. And the reason we change to data ethics is, um, one, when we were talking with regulators and, and you know they knew that we had as much data as just about anybody on the planet, it seemed a little bit of a stretch to say that we really believe in privacy right? If we were holding all of this data, but what we do believe in and did believe in is the ethical and the proper and the appropriate use of data. Right. And the law, you know, is the outer boundary mm-hmm. of conduct, if you think about it. And so by having an ethical framework around this, it allows us to legitimately ask the, the questions, can we use this data? That's an important question, but more importantly, should we use this data 
in this way. Yes. Mom and grandparent question a lot. Yep. Your mom or your grandparents be okay with the use of data about them? Mm-hmm. We're using it. And those are, those are good um, ditches to stay between. They really are. So we have a dedicated team. Um, I brought on someone who I'd worked with for 35 years uh, to head up our data ethics team. And uh, they're professionals. They're fully certified. And <clears throat> we don't look at them from a, um, you know, an internal policing function. Um, we look at them as part of the business team where they're fully embedded and we embed the ethical concepts of data use into the culture of the business. Right. We think this will serve us well over time. Um, and so far so good. That's great. Yeah. I see it at the table at the front end with people who are thinking about a particular business issue, especially when you're talking about data, right? Um, so that you get it right at the front end actually, I think can help in many respects, save you money down the line, right? Because you're going to get it right the first time, as opposed to trying to fix it on the back end, which can sometimes be, you know, two or three times as much as it cost on the front end, if you would have just got it right, you know, plus you invite scrutiny and, and potential regulatory action and everything else. But I love how you frame that up. I mean, ethics truly is, and tech ethics in particular, it's not what can you do, with the, with the data and the, it's what should you do? Right. And um, oftentimes it feels like that question isn't asked enough. So kudos to LiveRamp for asking that at the beginning. So, so let's, let's pull together this data ethics and, and data uh, responsible use of data topic with the public policy side of it, which, which I know you're very, uh, very involved in. And, you know, we've got this interesting moment in time, which we've had for a while now, where um, the U.S. has not had any federal uh, data ethics, responsible use of data, data privacy kind of regulation. European Union, you know, blue bias now, they have GDPR, you know, California put in theirs, you know, the CPP uh, or CCPA, I should say. Um, but we don't have anything at the federal level. So I guess my question is, do you think that would be beneficial if we had that um, and some type of uniform regulation around data and data protection. Yes, absolutely. Um, and allow me to uh, expand upon that a little bit. Yes. We do have um, a lot of federal laws that deal with how data about people can be used, but we don't have a comprehensive law. We have laws that are more sectorial in nature, for instance. Right. Fair Credit Reporting Act that provides certain types of data can only be used for permissible purposes, think employment, access to credit, things like that. And that's an example of how data that's very sensitive has been able to be utilized for good purposes to help people get loans, to be able to get credit at distance from people that don't know you personally. Yeah. You know, when I was growing up in Bentonville, if, if my parents wanted to build a house, they really had one place to go to get a home loan, and that was the Benton County Savings and Loan. <laughs> and now, if you want to get a home loan, you can go on the internet, and there are thousands of opportunities to get a better interest rate, for instance. And that's an example of how data can work for the public good. You've got HIPAA regulating data about health that's, matters. That's You've true. got HAPA, which is um, uh, the use and collection of online data about children. And it goes on. 
But you are very, very right that we do not have a comprehensive national law, data law. And yes, we need one. Um, and we have been, and I personally have been of this view for a long time. Why? Well, first, the U.S. created the data industry around the globe. Our businesses, our inventors, our entrepreneurs have created the data industry and have built phenomenal companies with data as the foundation. So in my view, the United States government should be the data regulatory superpower in the world mm -hmm. rather than our friends in the EU. Mm -hmm. So it is my view that we need a comprehensive and preemptive national data law that properly balances the interest of people, society at large, business, fosters a level playing field for business and people, and allows American, American businesses to be able to continue to think and make business decisions with data. Mm -hmm. uh, there are currently dozens of bills that have been filed in the Congress, and this happens every term, so many that I've lost count. But there really is a pathway to passage, and most of the central players on these issues know the two things, the two big roadblocks right now, the impediments that need to be turned into the building blocks of the bridge to an actual law. And those are preemption and under what circumstances can a person who has suffered from a violation of whatever the federal law is have access to the American judicial system. Mm. And I think that there are good and valid reasons why people should be able to access the judicial system. Yes. If they have suffered actual harm from a substantial violation of a privacy law. No doubt about that. Right. But, <clears throat> but there are things that the various interest groups on both sides want to see and don't want to see. And it's a very big political issue. Preemption, meaning whether or not the federal law is going to set the floor or set the ceiling for data privacy laws and preempt or replace various state laws, right. can't really be solved until the Congress can come to grips on the access to the judicial system issue. Because if you're a member of Congress, how can you decide whether or not this is a good deal for people or not? until you know what are the accountability provisions um, that will show that the system is going to operate fairly. Mm -hmm. But a path can be found on this. Um, the United States Senate, I think, is where the real action is going to have to play out. That's not to say the United States House of Representatives is not going to have a massive and critical role in formulating a law. But the 60-vote mountain in the United States Senate is what has to be scaled. And that means that we have to find a way, um, currently at present, probably for a long time, to find bipartisan support. Right. To get to the 60 votes because um, you're, you know, it's just hard. It's hard to get together 60 votes on anything in the United States Senate, but we're starting to see some movement. Um, but, you know, That's a couple good. of years a couple of years ago, I gave a speech to the United States Chamber of Commerce, where I started out by reading a quote from a newspaper article that I had in my hand that said, there was no doubt, it was imminent that a privacy bill was going to go to the president for signature during that term. That was 
That article, though, was from 20 years ago. <laughs> Goodness. Well, and you know, in that, in that, that's crazy to think about. But you know, sometimes uh, uh, we move a little slowly on that side. Which, when you're talking about technology and the pace of you know laws and regulations, that's why there's this huge gap in between the two, and and the explosion of the internet. Um, over the last 20 years, I think it's really now brought this into sharper focus and um, put a finer point on perhaps the need uh, for some type of comprehensive federal regulation that goes well beyond just kind of the sector things that you, you mentioned. It's really the, the wild west of the internet and the way that data is, is being used in that way um, that, that seems to be screaming for some type of attention these days. So keep at it. Um, it sounds like there's still some work to do there. So, so let's talk about that particular aspect of it in the internet, uh, the data that's on the internet, um, the way to your point that, you know, we've got the entrepreneurs here that sort of figure that whole model out. Um, and a lot of that has to do with advertising, right? And advertising um, uh, through the internet in a very targeted way, which of course is gonna be beneficial to the companies that are doing the advertising. It's more efficient ad spend, probably has a you know, much better rate of return when you can target who you're advertising. And um, obviously there are those who like that and there are those who don't. Um, but my question is, it has to this point sort of kept the internet free, support it for those of us who use it, um, just pretty much everybody these days. Um, but do you think that sort of targeting is is makes sense? Is it a form of almost, you know, discrimination among customers that could be defined as good discrimination? And if so, why? Oh, great question! Um, and this is a this is a very important question, and it's um, um, thing. If we think about the value proposition here. Um, you know, it's literally mind blowing to think that on a device that I have in my pocket, I can punch in a couple of words and I can find out the answer to almost anything. Or I can find, you know, toys that we want to give to our grandchildren this year at Christmas from around the globe instantly. Yeah. And th there's just an amazing thing. And the value that we get from being able to share information with people around the world and the collective wisdom of the world can increase because the method of communication is there. And as you point out, is basically free to the consumer. But it's not entirely free because it is supported by advertising, which is supported by information about people. And, you know, again, yeah, I hate to keep talking about when I was growing up, but when I was growing up there in Bentonville, um, you know, there were a lot of truths about advertising then that are true now. One was that the businesses wanted to know who their customers were. They wanted to right. know where to spend their time and their money. And there was a clothing store. It was Putnam's Men's Store right off the square in Bentonville where, you know, my dad and I would go and buy our Sunday clothes. And the people that worked there knew us. Um, they knew what we bought. They knew what we might be interested in. You know, gee, Jerry, I remember you bought that blazer last month. Why don't you get these gray slacks and red tie to go with it? Sure would look good. Well, now we're trying to do that at scale and distance using computers. And right. it's not the same, but that's the goal, is to be yeah. able to know your customer, know your prospect. So there are going to be some rough edges on that. 
But overall, is it a good value exchange? Yeah, I think it is. Mm -hmm. um, from the business side, it means that you're going to be able to uh, better allocate and provide information to people that has a better chance of being relevant to that person. Right. And just flooding them with things that are not relevant. You know, in the early days of internet marketing, there are all these pop-up ads that would literally be like bubbles coming up on your screen, you know, offering you this or that, that had no relevance to your life whatsoever. Yeah. It'd be kind of like General Motors trying to sell me, a, you know, a 50-ton dump truck. Right, right. For that. Right. General Motors, if they knew who I was, might say, you know, Jerry might be a good candidate for a Denali. Um, or even more refined, you know, his his son and, and wife probably not going to be able to sell them a two-seater red Corvette anytime soon because they got kids. <laughs> but you know what? We could sell them a, a Denali or some kind of an SUV if we know that they're in a certain income range and, and there's presence of children, then they can tailor that information. Yeah. So, you know, the, the terminology around these concepts, those uh, uh, kind of got the industry knocked back a little bit. Words like, um, you know, behavioral capitalism or surveillance capitalism, even the word targeting is kind of an emotionally laden word. But, you know, targeting is really, you could call it, you know, providing right. relevant information. I was just going to say relevancy could be another term that you use, right? Relevancy. But, you know, having said all this, of course, there are uh, companies in, in business models that go too far. Mm -hmm. And a, a lot of times the market will take care of that. A lot of times regulation will, you know, bring them back in. But overall, I think that the people of the globe have immensely benefited from the relative availability of data that supports um, entrepreneurs in, in lots of business models. Um, and advertising in and of itself, I think it has been historically the most effective cross-subsidization of speech that could be imagined. Hmm. And it's been that way almost since the Gutenberg Press, right? It, yeah. it works. Very few publications can survive on subscriptions alone. Yeah. To have that advertising revenue. So right. it is a public good. Right. Look at it from that way. If you it, do, yeah. Speech. Yeah. So so you have I have to bring into the conversation at this point, um, Apple's new privacy feature that at this point, uh, the point of our recording has been out there for about six months. Um, and it's the privacy feature for you know, the, the new operating system when you download it that, that lets the end user consumer yep. essentially say, I don't want to be targeted you know, for ads. So don't, I don't want my data um, shared by different apps uh, any more than is absolutely you know, necessary for that app to use it for its intended purpose, which um, would seem to me that it you know, takes away the relevancy of, of the ads and, and those, the individuals who choose to do that may in fact be flooded with, you know, ads that aren't as relevant anymore. Um, but I just saw a recent report that said of the folks that have downloaded the new, you know, update, which is, I don't know, somewhere north of 80% of those who had it available, like the majority of them have decided to, to, to opt out, if you will, when, when given that option. So how do you, what, how do you think about that in light of the discussion we just had 
with respect to the good that advertising can do? And how do you balance those two? Yeah, well, you know, first I would say that Apple had every right in the world to make the decision to do it that way. Um, Apple is a private company. It's not a government entity. Uh, so long as it operates within the laws, it can make decisions that it believes are in the best interest of its business. And Apple has done a very good job of um, planting its flag on the side of privacy writ large. Um, their CEO has been talking about this for quite a long period of time. And they, they're a very sophisticated company. They, I don't think they would have made that decision unless they thought it would benefit their company. Right. Right. So fine. That's their decision. Now, the outcome of it is that it is causing shifts in the way the industry works and where um, advertising dollars get allocated. Um, it's taken about $10 billion um, away from publishers of content um, and, um, you know, different platforms are benefiting more from the shift of advertising uh, to those platforms that are not, uh, you know, dependent upon Apple uh, mm -hmm. traffic. Um, but th there is an interesting aspect of, of how it works. Um, it is a great example of how giving people just-in-time information uh -huh. is a good thing. But it's also a limited just-in-time display of information because Again, it says, basically, do you want to be tracked or not? Yes or no. Right. Doesn't make the argument or present the information that, you know what, if everybody says they don't want to be tracked, we're going to have to figure out a different way to support the, the business of the internet. Mm -hmm. And you may end up having to swap your credit card every time that you want to go on the internet and try to find something. So how do you feel about it now? Right. Mm -hmm. But th that's a full paragraph. Do you want to be tracked as, you know, three, four words, um, and <clears throat> the, the concept of behavioral uh, economics comes into play here. And that's all about where do you set a default? And studies show that uh, inertia is an extremely powerful thing. And right. if, you, if you set a default one way or the other, in, in, in a lot of different aspects of life, 80% are going to say, I'm going with the default, 20% are going to make a change. Several years ago, Stanford did a study on uh, organ donation, and they looked at um, Europe, various countries in Europe where the default is your organs can be donated for research or to save someone's life after your death, and about 80% go along with that default, 20% say, nope, don't want to do that. In the U.S., you have to give affirmative consent to do that. Guess what? Only about 20% of us say yes, and 80% of us just leave it the way it is. That's right. And, and so the numbers that we're seeing coming out of Apple, um, you know, kind of fit within that. And Roughly, so, yeah, they you know, do. They kind of fit within that. So mm -hmm. it's not surprising um, to see how that's, you know, working out. Um, and of course, it was interesting to see um, when Apple came out with this, that, you know, one of the largest platforms, Facebook, now known as Meta, took out full page ads and national publicizing yeah. publications, criticizing Apple 
for the for doing something that might reduce the amount of data that's available for marketing decisions. It's just interesting to see these giants mm. fight over these issues. Yeah. But, you know, finally, we have an internet that's primarily supported by advertising and marketing. Right. Um, I think that's a pretty good deal for people. I actually do. Yeah. With the amount of information that's at our fingertips that just never was, you know, before, Huge medical advances has been allowed because of it too. So, I mean, you really, you really do have to step back and think critically about where to land and the kind of language, to your point, that's being used and whether or not the words, you know, tracking and, and other words, if there are other words that could be used that would make it feel a little less inflammatory um, and if that might be stoking the fires a bit. Yeah, you know, it, it, it reminds me of how enriching it is for life to have all that information available when dad turned around 90 my sisters and i got mom and dad a, a computer and um you know they were a little bit hesitant to use it they took a course at northwest Arkansas community college i believe to learn how to use it yep he called me one day after he'd figured out how to use it and said son this is like living next door to the library of congress oh. i can research anything that i want to and are you aware of what's happening with uh, fertility of frogs and South <laughs> And I said, no, dad, where are you going with this? Said, well, they're kind of at the bottom of the food chain eating insects and they're not as fertile as they used to be. So something's <laughs> on. And dad's, he was right, you know, and here he is a 90 year old gentleman able to research anything that came to his mind as a result of the internet. Yeah. That's an amazing thing. And it's not just my dad. That's anybody almost, almost around that's the planet right. can do the same. Right. That's right. That, and that's a great uh, story to kind of illustrate the power of the internet and, and what it brings to people. Jerry, this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, very wide ranging. We covered a lot of ground. I appreciate you sharing your time, your wisdom, your stories, uh, your history, everything with us. It was fabulous. I always like to leave off with one last question, though, for the audience, students, others who want to know a little bit more about this topic of tech ethics, data ethics, you know, where the world's headed with AI. Do you have any good recommendations where people can find it? I'm sure on the internet and go further, either documentaries maybe or podcasts or books or anything like that? Oh, sure. Um, I love books. I uh, got that from my mom, I think, you know, school teacher for her whole life. Um, you know, to get a comprehensive view of kind of the counter argument to a lot of what I've said, there's a book called Surveillance Capitalism, came out a couple of years ago. It's about 850 pages, kind of hard to get through, but it's got a lot of information. Um, I'm looking over to my bookcase, uh, AI Superpowers. Mm -hmm. A really good book, The Age of AI, which just came out. It's authored by Secretary Kissinger and Eric Schmidt. Um, the Wires of War is an interesting book, um, and it goes into um, will warfare change as a result of um, you know advances in computing and artificial intelligence. Um, wow. And then um, this is a really odd recommendation, but there is a direct connection to computing in a book by two entomologists called The Silken Thread. And they actually trace the relationship between silkworms and silk and computers. 
And <clears throat> around the end of, in, in the late uh, 1800s, they started to figure out how to um, automate the uh, weaving of silk. And they were using a rudimentary type of thing called cards to do that, from which punch cards came. And there was a guy named Hollerith that figured out how to do this. And he ended up starting a company that later changed its name to International Business Machines. And the book's fascinating to think that, wait a minute, silkworms have something to do with computing. But it's a good example of how um, entrepreneurs and inventors um, really do invent the future for all of us and make life better. Wow, that's that is that's fascinating. As uh, as has everything else you've shared with us today, Ben. I love the way you're able to weave in stories that you wouldn't expect along the way. So, Jerry, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you very very much for your time and for sharing so uh, so openly with all of us. I I really appreciate it, and I know students and others are going to learn a lot by listening to this episode. Appreciate one, it. One final comment. Yeah. Go hogs. Absolutely. Go hogs. <laughs> Thanks, Jerry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Biz, the Business Integrity School. You can find us on YouTube, Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. And you can find us by searching The Biz. That's one word, T-H-E. BIS, which stands for the Business Integrity School. Tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.